From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and their journey through the information security industry. Hello, my name is Mike Shima, and I'd like to introduce today's guest. It's a familiar voice on this podcast and my friend, Caroline Wong. Caroline's travels through InfoSec have taken her through a variety of roles across several companies, starting with an internship at eBay up to her current position of chief security strategist at Cobalt. A lot of her past work involved consulting on security and metrics, especially BSIMs, which is a topic that she co-wrote a book on. And she's also been active on the community side of InfoSec, not only from this podcast and not only speaking at conferences about the personal sides of working in the AppSec community, but also she was recently invited to be part of the advisory board for the RSA conference. So, hi Caroline, welcome to the interviewee side of the podcast. Yeah, it's totally weird and very fun. I am thrilled to be a guest and it's a little different, you know, to be on this side. So, and it's always a little, it's always a little strange to hear one's bio, um, but I really appreciate you putting that together for me. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. And since you started with that, that, that idea of totally weird and totally fun, that how, how much of InfoSec has been totally weird and totally fun? Like, you, I, I mentioned that you got started on an internship at eBay. So what got you into an internship in InfoSec, let alone? Yeah, so one of my favorite questions to ask our guests um, and thrilled to answer it as well. So when I was in college, I studied electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley, uh, to be honest. And I think I've mentioned this on um, one of our podcasts before, but it wasn't totally my choice. My Chinese immigrant father sort of insisted that I do that. And it turned out, it turned out pretty good. Uh, these days, I think to myself, you know, was it worth it? Because it was very challenging. Uh, and I think the answer is yes, because now I find myself in this field that I really enjoy uh, with this lifestyle that I really enjoy. So I'm, I'm grateful for having made that decision, which I wouldn't have necessarily made on my own. Um, my, my junior year of college, I thought to myself, okay, I would like to get a summer internship. And I was living with my parents in San Francisco at the time, and I applied to jobs in Silicon Valley. I must have applied to 40 or 50 internships. I've always been kind of a cast a big net um, <laughs> philosophy type person. And the, the reason I chose to apply to jobs in Silicon Valley was because that's where my boyfriend at the time was living. And I didn't want to live with my parents that summer. I wanted to live with him. So I get this job at eBay in San Jose in IT project management. And I, I get this internship, the internship's great. I graduate from college and I say to my hiring manager, uh, my internship manager, I should say, hey, Carl, you know, I'd really like to work for you guys full time. And he says to me, Caroline, we'd love to have you, but unfortunately there's a freeze in the IT department and we're not allowed to hire anyone right now. However, there is an entry-level position in information security, and you should go check it out. And I said to him, Carl, I literally don't know what information security means. And he said, that's okay, because really the team's just looking to hire a new college grad, and they'll teach you everything you need to know. And so the night before my interview, I went online, I memorized the Wikipedia page on information <laughs> security, and, and the rest is history. Here I am 13 years later. 
That's funny. I think there, there's kind of an implicit commentary there on computer science. If, <laughs> you know, problems possibly, unfortunately, still true to this day that somebody can go through computer science and have that idea of, I don't know what information security is. But, um, you know, we can maybe set that aside as a bigger commentary on InfoSec. So let's see. You said, want to stick around Silicon Valley, pushed in, you know, put, put in this effort, go through electrical engineering, computer science, be technical. But suddenly you kind of implied already or you kind of said, like, I have no idea what InfoSec is, even <laughs> though you are coming from a technical background. What is that sort of like? I guess what was a little bit of that journey and has that journey ended in the sense of you feel more technical or, you know, how did those roles from going from eBay to your other roles change your self-concept or self-awareness of how technical you were or how comfortable you were? Sure. So it's funny because when you started to make that comment about computer science and how, you know, you could graduate with a degree in computer science and not know what information security means, you know, certainly that was true in 2005. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting. For me, I've always been the type of person who is sort of up for anything. Um, so I'll, I'll contrast that with a good friend of mine from high school. All he ever wanted to do was be in the Air Force. And my sister is a pediatrician and something like becoming a medical doctor requires one to decide that you want to do that and then go down sort of a very uh, structured uh, path uh, and be very committed to that. And I've always sort of been the type of person that's like, well, you know, what's in front of me and whatever there's, there is, you know, I'll give my best shot at it. And so this was like that. So I'll give some context for this particular role. Uh, this was the summer of 2005, at the end of 2004, the first version of PCI DSS was released. Um, and then of course, SOX was also, eBay as a public company, had information security controls that they needed to manage related to SOX. And so I was brought on as sort of a security policy analyst, both helping out with some of these compliance oriented tasks, as well as uh, being responsible for eBay's 50 or so page security policy, uh, which I would receive questions about and not sort of be the expert already. It, but it was interesting because I'd receive questions about the policy from business folks and from technical folks. I'd go talk to members of our management team, ask them the same question because I didn't know the answer. And then they'd kind of teach me about whatever area I was asking about. And that's the way sort of in this Q&A over and over again, style um, that I came to learn InfoSec. Um, that and later, several years later, uh, Dave Cullinane, who was a CISO that I worked with at eBay, sponsored our entire team uh, to go and receive CISSP training. And so for me at that time in my career, it was a really great way to sort of get a solid understanding of some of the basics without having had another way to get that. Cool. And I think, you know, I've listened, you know, so you can check my homework. I went and listened to some of these other podcasts you've been doing. And, <laughs> and um, you know, one of the themes was you talked to a lot of people who didn't even have that, that in the Venn diagram of, you know, information security, they didn't even have a, a strong overlap, at least electrical engineering and computer science is what's in the, you know, it's, it's kind of close, but it, there was this theme of people kind of learning on their own and bringing their own way into this. And that sounds like what you did right there. I also want to ask though, 
Um, was there somebody who was like a mentor? Did you have somebody that was helping to guide you on some consequential decisions or I guess guide that self-direction that you were doing? Absolutely. So early in my career, I was working on the eBay security team. And in 2007, they hired Dave Colinane, who had previously been the CISO at Washington Mutual. And Dave taught me so much about the field um, and what I know today. Dave was and is an extremely brilliant guy. Um, he approached me one day in the break room. I'm getting myself a cup of hot tea. And he says to me, Caroline, what do you want to do, you know, for your job, like in the future? And I said to him as a 23 year old, I said, <laughs> Dave, I'd like to be the CEO of a small to medium sized company one day. And he said to me, okay, well for now, you know, I'd really like for you to report to me uh, and be the chief of staff for the team. Uh, and for me, this was a big deal because I had previously been working for a manager who reported to Dave. And so for him to suggest that I work for him directly uh, was actually quite intimidating. I said to him, I said, Dave, you know that I'm 23 years old and I'm just getting started in this field. And he said, well, you know, don't be too worried because I know everything that we are gonna need to know. And what I know about you is that you know how to get things done. And that's really what this team needs. So I think we're going to be able to work really well together. Um, and I sort of had the opportunity to watch him work as he approached the executives at eBay, explained to them why the existing investment in information security was not appropriate, uh, made a pitch to make a much larger investment, uh, which they went for, uh, turned to me, someone with not a finance background and said, here, why don't you manage this uh, eight figure uh, budget? And I was like, whoa, this is very interesting. CapEx, OpEx, um, and of course, you know, the vendor community finds out very quickly when you've got a big security budget. So I had an opportunity to meet with a lot of different folks and learn about a lot of things uh, during that time. And then about six months later, Dave says to me, hey, so, you know, we've got this money and we've done a lot of hiring. We actually um, hired a global team from 25 to 64 uh, over that first year. And now we've got some technology, we've got a lot of projects going. What we need is the metrics to ensure ongoing investment in the program. Go figure that out. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so I did what I always do when I don't know what to do, which is I go on Google, and I do a lot of searching and I try to read books. Um, so I had read Andy Jaquit's book on security metrics, attend conferences, listen to talks, and basically just try and learn everything I could. And, and that for me um, was a tremendous opportunity. Interesting. And now you didn't, you didn't stop there with metrics, right? I believe that you dove into even more security metrics in a lot of your consulting work. And I'm, you know, asking a leading, leading the witness, I suppose, um, even wrote a book about it or co-wrote a book. That's right. So one of the cool things that um, happened to me when I was working with Dave on the global information security team at eBay, uh, one year, it's RSA 2009, and Dave is uh, planned to speak on a panel about security metrics. And he says to me, you know, I've actually got such a busy conference week why don't you do this talk 
instead. After all, you're driving the initiative for our team. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, this is, this is very cool. And this is very exciting. Um, and this is a little bit, a little bit of a new scary thing, you know, but I, I prepared as much as I could and I got up there and I did it. And when I finished, there was a woman in the audience who approached me and she said, Hey, I'm an editor with McGraw Hill and I'm working with an author named Lance Hayden and he's writing a book on IT security metrics. And I think it would be so cool if you would write a case study chapter for this book. So I'm very excited about this and I, and I agree to do it and I read Lance's book and I, one night after a few glasses of wine, I write Jane an email and I say, look, I've been reading Lance's book and I think it's brilliant. And I said, but I have really been immersing myself in the topic of security metrics at this time. It's like 2009, so almost 10 years ago. And I say to her, and I know that the industry is actually not ready for Lance's book. He's 10 years ahead of his time. And I said to her, but I'll tell you what, I could write the book that the industry needs right now, which is a beginner's guide. Uh, and she says, cool, you know, why don't you write me a template? Uh, and one thing led to another and I wrote a book proposal and she asked me to send her a sample chapter. And then a couple years later, it was published, uh, 2012. It was the number six bestseller at RSA Conference Bookstore. 2013, it was the number one bestseller at RSA Conference Bookstore. Uh, and 2013 is also where I ended up working for Sigital, uh, conducting BSIM assessments, which is um, very sort of data-driven application security model for the industry. Wow! So I, you know, I guess I want to say I appreciate you sticking, you know, sticking with your day job after rolling in all that fat cash from an InfoSec bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> the book was the book was a really cool way for me to. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a 400 page business card, you know, oh, totally. an opportunity yeah. to, as you know, right. You, you hand someone a copy of your book and there's something really cool about being able to do that. And for me having at the time a relatively short career in the field, it really sort of it gave me an opportunity to have conversations with people that might not have talked to me otherwise. So for me, that was super cool because I got to connect to these people uh, because they were interested in talking to me because of, of this book. Yeah, and I think that's great. And I think, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that on, especially in InfoSec uh, books, there is no money in royalties from them. So it definitely has to be a labor <laughs> of love. It, yeah. it has to be something that you enjoy or, you know, want to actually dive into. Um, so, that's that, right. yeah. <laughs> so, so that's a, you know, that's a pretty interesting decision to make, you know, just to pull that onto yourself and obviously one that was very successful for you. So that's fantastic. Um, and you kind of tying back on some other angles here, you mentioned just when you were looking for that internship, you know, choosing location based on your personal life, you know, you know, your boyfriend's in the area, but you know, you're now you know, later in your career. Um, later in your your life as well as a mom what has been that aspect and how has that angle of your personal life either influenced work or even how has work influenced you know your your personal life yeah so I am so proud to be a mom uh, for me it's actually like 
one of the most important things I think of my life for me is being a mom. And I'm so happy to be a mom and, and feel so fortunate uh, to have a couple of happy, healthy children. You know, it's funny because as I reflect on the various career transitions I've made in my life, pretty much all of them have been personal. Um, eBay to Zynga, for example, I was living in San Francisco and driving to San Jose every day. I was tiring of the commute and I sought a job uh, in San Francisco, which is where I was living at the time, which is where I'm living now. Actually, as I uh, transitioned to Cobalt in 2016, uh, one of the big reasons that I decided to transition out of my management consulting job with Sigital, which I which I loved, um, but which there was a big component that required travel, and in fact, quite a lot of international travel. And when my daughter was about a year old, I thought to myself, I, I would like to prioritize the way that I spend my time differently, and I'd like to spend more time at home. So I sought, uh, once again, uh, a job based in San Francisco uh, so that I could be more uh, so that I could be home with my kid more. Um, so being a working mom is an interesting thing and something for me that's really fun because in the same day, I can sort of, you know, be changing my infant son. I can be feeding him at three in the morning, which turns out to be kind of convenient if you have team members on the other side of the globe because they're working when it's 3 a.m. in San Francisco or 5 a.m. in San Francisco. <laughs> so, so I've discovered in some ways these little funny ways that, you know, we do live in a global business economy. And one of the sort of classic things about having an infant is you're sort of up all night because infants, until sleep trained, uh, you know, they don't, they don't really know about this whole, like, please just sleep through the night, baby. Um, and there, and there <laughs> right. can be, and there can be surprising advantages to that. Um, for me, one of the surprising advantages is when my son wakes up and it's four in the morning and he and I are up together, if I find myself really awake, the whole rest of the world, it feels like is asleep. And there is an emptiness and a stillness and a space, which sometimes I actually get my best thinking done at that time of day because there's no interruptions. There's nothing going sure. on. Um, and then, of course, sort of the, the time zone thing. Um, but I've had to shift the way that I look at and I, and I approach my work. So in for me, eBay days, this is like, single Caroline, living at home with my parents, um, you know, up at five, on the road at six, to the office at seven, working until seven, you know, either staying in San Jose to have dinner or maybe back on the road, home by eight. My work took up my whole day. And for me, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and then I sort of got to this point where that wasn't working for me so well anymore because this thing happened where I kept taking on projects and then some of them would go really well and then I would get new projects. <laughs> and then my, my to-do list would sort of get longer and longer and longer and the strat I had a strategy that worked out pretty well earlier in my career, which was I said yes to every work project. 
And for me, it was an opportunity to learn something and to prove myself. But that got to a point where when my plate was too full, I wasn't able to execute on the work and perform with high quality work. If I wasn't well rested, if I wasn't able to create that space and time and focus, and if I wasn't able to prioritize. So now I, I don't choose to work extra long hours all the time as a strategy for dealing with more or new work that comes my way. I actually have to be really focused about prioritizing what am I going to do and when? Um, because I've got these two tiny humans in my life whom I really want to spend a lot of time with. Um, now, that's not to say that when I'm with my kids, I'm not thinking about work. And I'm the <laughs> person that, like, I do think about my work a lot. I would say, like, really a lot of the time. Um, and I like that because when I find you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes, then if I've been thinking about something here and there for the past couple of days or the past week, and if I've been thinking about it with an objective to accomplish something, then when I get that time, I can just execute. And I have found that for me, I'm able to be so much more efficient than I could have been 10 years ago because at that point in time, I didn't have the same priorities that I do today. Yeah, that is that makes a lot of sense, and that's really cool just to explain how you're, you know, describing that adaptation, that change in focus too. And I think um, a little bit of it I, that probably reflects going from you know chief of staff to chief security strategist. Also, I guess the the nature of what you're looking at, the nature of what you're thinking of. Um, I wanted to ask too, kind of along those lines, that was a lot of how you were adapting. What would you also recommend either to companies or to others that are in a similar position as you about what companies can do to make, you know, a Caroline Wong, who is a mom, more successful there? How can they support or enable? Uh, That's super cool. So for me, I was actually having this conversation um, the other day with my sister, who's also a mom of two young children. And I said to her, you know, I have no idea how new parents go back to the office after parental leave to a job where they can't work from home, at least part of the time. Um, So for me, I've had that opportunity both at Sigital and Cobalt, uh, my two employers when each of my children were born. And for me, that made a huge difference. I mean, just the time not commuting, um, the time not getting dressed. Although if I have a video conference call, you know, I'll try and put on a clean shirt. Um, Little things like that. And frankly, the ability to, if it's 2.30 in the afternoon and I've got a break until my next call at three o'clock and I'm home, I will lay down for 15 minutes and get a little cat nap in. And then when I wake up and I take my 3 p.m. conference call, my mind is that much sharper. So I think that it depends for every person, of course, Um, but certainly things that companies can do uh, for parents are 
support parental leave to the extent that it makes sense for the business, pay for parental leave. Um, I think that, you know, we're in an environment today where because there are more information security jobs than there are individuals with information security skills, the individuals have an advantage. If I find myself in a job that I don't like for whatever reason, I can find another job. And many industries are not like that. We are incredibly fortunate uh, to be in that situation at this point in time. Um, and I think that employers ought to be creating environments where the priorities are clear so that their employees can focus on what matters. Um, and, and prioritization requires not only deciding what's important, but also deciding what's not important and deciding what you're not going to do so that you can make space and time to focus on what is important. Um, and then I think for individuals, you know, I think it's really important to figure out what is it about me that I need. So whether it's enough sleep, enough fluids and nutrition, enough exercise, enough time with loved ones, enough time with pets, enough travel, whatever it is that you love that feeds you, either literally or dare I say spiritually, you know, make sure that you're getting that in your life because when you take the time to figure out what it is that you need and then you give it to yourself, you can perform at your best in the workplace and you know everywhere in your life is something that I believe. Yeah, I think a, a lot of what you're describing is your perspective, how this works for you, but you've also been, you know, and obviously fantastic advice, and you've also been talking to a lot of people just and sharing those conversations on these podcasts, for example. So I'm kind of curious, was there, you know, you've given us a great idea of what works for you, how you adapt. As you were talking to others throughout this, throughout this past year on the podcast, were there certain themes that you kind of discovered or that surprised you from others? Or, or did they, did, was there a lot of things that were similarities? I love this question. You know, I find that for me, the month of December tends to be an introspective sort of month for a lot of reasons. You know, it's the end of the year. It's just before the new year begins. It's the holiday season. You know, you're, you're wrapping up the year. We're wrapping up our first season of the Humans of InfoSec podcast. And I would say that definitely two themes emerged. One is that I don't think a single person I spoke with or you spoke with on the podcast either expected or planned to end up where they are today. So there's this way in which none of us can sort of see the future and we don't live in a world where, you know, you pick a job at the age of 18 and then you do that for 35 years. That's just not, you know, how, how it works uh, for a lot of folks today. So one is this element of not knowing and some level of being comfortable with that. Um, Another is, and these are very, they go hand in hand, sort of a passion 
for continuous learning and acknowledgement that in this industry, you know, what you're doing today is likely to be pretty different from whatever it is you choose to be doing two or three or five years from today. Um, and what's important in a field where things change and where there's a lot of different dimensions and where there's a lot of complexity is to is to be okay not knowing everything because it's not possible for any one individual to know everything, but to be comfortable and willing and excited about learning something when you need to. Um, and I think there's a lot of cool resources throughout the industry to help people learn about things when they need to. Now you did just say that we can't predict the future. So I'm absolutely <laughs> gonna put you on the spot and say, <laughs> Since we're talking about the podcast, what does the future of the podcast look like? Any, any hints or any ideas for what 2019 will bring us? Cool. So let's see. I'll say this. We're definitely going to have some new folks on the podcast. And we may also have some folks on the podcast that we've had already. If we're bringing back somebody to appear as a guest on the podcast for a second time, we will dive deep into an area with them. So, you know, the format of these has been, you know, about 30 minutes, fairly high level, focusing on, generally speaking, career level stories. But each of the folks that we've had also has one or more areas of very deep expertise. And so I think you'll see if we're bringing folks back from time to time, that will actually dive quite deep with those folks. So that'll be a, a little bit of a change to the, to the format that I'm looking forward to. Cool. And then, and what about the future of the future of Caroline? So the past year you've been to um, a couple conferences um, talking about actually things about a lot of the social aspects and very personal aspects of InfoSec. Um, do you, and as well as I think I mentioned, I'm trying to remember we can, but um, being a, part of the advisory board for the RSA conference. So it sounds like you'll still be really involved in conferences and building them. What's that going to look like for you? Yeah, so I've had a number of opportunities pop up over this past year where I can really engage and support the community. Um, my role with ISC Squared, my role with the RSA conference, these are things that I really, really enjoy doing because they allow me to connect with the community and hopefully provide a perspective on how we can move our industry forward, particularly in areas like diversity and inclusion. Um, and also looking at this whole talent shortage thing because we are in an industry where we sort of need more people to have the skills that we're looking for um and i you know i'm always like hey everyone infosec is great come join us you know and then and then sometimes you know there's stuff that um doesn't sound super good like oh you know i i was in this situation and this person didn't treat me super well and you know that yep. kind of stuff definitely happens and is not cool um but but I, what i hope to do uh with some of my initiatives and with this podcast is to kind of show like infosec is made up of all sorts of different people and there is opportunity for all sorts of different people to contribute. Um, and so that to me is, is a really big theme. 
I think that's a great theme. And um, I like how that was also, you know, one of the themes that when you were, I guess we were talking about kicking off the podcast, you were you know, bringing up that idea about this journey through InfoSec and how do people get where they are and really highlighting, it's nice to see that humans is in the title itself, that, you know, people are people. Um, to crib from the lyric, and um, <clears throat> and this is how diverse they are, how inclusive we can make the InfoSec community, and that there's a lot of different ways to get where people are today. Totally, absolutely. That's um, it's been it's been a very enjoyable and a very satisfying uh, type of work to embark on. Cool. And I think now this is where we get to the unfortunate part where we're not only closing out the year with this podcast, but I think we're also time getting to the point where we might need to close out the podcast itself. Any uh, final comments, anything else you wanted to add, Caroline, that, I, that you know, maybe I forgot to ask about? Let's see. I mean, only that I just want to express my appreciation for our listeners. I think it's so cool to see that we have a really engaged listener community. Um, you know, and so uh, just want to say thank you both to our listeners as well as to our guests uh, and looking forward to continuing the conversation next year in 2019. That sounds great. And I'll add my thanks as well to everybody who's um, forged their way onto the podcast and everyone who's downloaded and listened and uh, sending feedback. It's fantastic. Sounds great. Thanks, Mike. We just wanted to remind everyone that Humans of InfoSec will be on a holiday break and will resume on January 8, 2019. In the meantime, check out our past episodes if you haven't given them a listen already. And stay tuned by following us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening and happy holidays!